God created the sex drive to be an enormously important part of marriage and it's precisely because he values sexuality so highly that he prohibits all other kinds of sexual activity as we've seen in our discussion on homosexuality and morality generally. All this speaks of the value, honour and rights God gives to woman. For the man to be the head of the wife means to lift her up, to give her precedence over himself, expressed by the sage to the man. Below your means for yourself and above your means for your wife. That is headship. Most men like the title head of the family but they do not like the job description. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is an incredibly tough task. The woman's role is easy compared to this. Wives, submit to your husbands, lovingly allowing the last word, voluntarily adapt yourself in love to your husband. Matthew 10, 20, 25 and 26 says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. The model of headship, both for the man and the woman, is that both should give precedence to the other, which is also the example to set the children. In love, adapt yourself to the well-being of your spouse and children for the sake of Jesus, because he is looking for the peace of God in your home. One last word on the male-female roles and specifically the role of women as God created her. She as the man has two roles. If she is married she gives herself first to the Lord and then to her husband. If she is single she gives herself to God and waits for his provision of a spouse. Likewise the man. He gives himself first to God and then to his wife. And that you will find in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's not good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let every man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And to the single, verses 29 to 35, But I say, brethren, time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried is concerned about the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is also a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your profit. Not that I may put a leash on you for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Reason? That you may serve the Lord without distraction. So, 
married or single, be content to remain with God in that calling in which you were called. That's 1 Corinthians 7.24. And the last word on this part of the talk comes from my previous teaching on sex, sexuality and morality in the 21st century church. And the point I'm pressing is that Jesus must be central in order that everything else and every other relationship orbits around him. Ladies, your husband is not the centre of the universe, and husbands, if they were there, your wife is not, Jesus is. Those of you who were here for the sex, sexuality and morality teaching may remember I spoke about relationships thus. Any time you want to build intimacy with a person before your identity is fully in Christ and you know and feel secure and strong in him, you will be expecting that person to do something for you that he or she cannot do. You will be loving them with a hook, eros. In other words, when your identity is in Christ, you don't need others in the same way. You don't have to perform and they don't have to come through in order for your ultimate needs to be met. The world says, set your hope on this person to come through for you, make this person the centre of your existence. God says, I am the centre of your existence, make me central and your love will change from Eros to Agape. The point is this, when we trade the treasure of Christ in us, the hope of glory in our hearts, for anything else, we are decentered and everything flies apart. We must restore the glory of the indwelling Christ to its flaming, all-attracting place in our hearts at the centre of our lives. Beloved, I am firmly convinced that what the church needs in this hour, needs it more than it needs revival, is reformation from eros to agape, from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. We presently have a self-centred, heal me, feed me, look after me religion that is a disgrace to the name of our Saviour. Putting him and his first commandment first, I'm convinced will heal all the ailments and the powerlessness of the present system which is eros unveiled. So the role of women in the church. Before we look at the scriptures about the role of women in the church, there needs to be a preface. Biblically, the church should be thought of as a community, an organism, not an organisation. It is a living, dynamic, interrelational, functioning body, servicing the needs of the whole, of which Jesus Christ is the living head. My life message is Jesus is Lord, what are you going to do about it? I said to Joyce, I saw some of my own teaching from 10 years ago and it might as well be today. The message is exactly the same. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Where is your heart? Jesus is Lord. What are you going to do about it? Exactly the same. Somebody said to me recently, they'd listened to the Women of Destiny conference and she said, well, it's exactly the same as you're saying now. And I thought, oh dear, I must be repeating myself. But then I realised it's my life message. You live it, you breathe it, you speak it, you eat it. You can't help it. I don't mean it unkindly, but unless we get him in his rightful place in our lives, we will not come into our true identity in him. Outside of this, we have not discovered our true identity. 
He highly esteems us as women. Even a cursory glance at the New Testament will prove this. We do need to press on to come into everything he won for us on the cross, you know. I think more and more we're going to see and understand where we are positionally and exactly what God has won for us. And when we see what it is, we will see how we've been robbed. Systematically robbed. No one's done it except the enemy himself. As we understand and believe what the Word says, men and women, who we are, all this weak-kneed, lily-livered, milk-toast stuff that passes the church will stop. So the role of women in the synagogue and the early church. Acts 2.42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So that's what any church should be doing. Steadfastly in doctrine, in fellowship, breaking bread and in prayers. In the book of Acts, the activities of the synagogue paralleled Jewish life for the first century. The congregation met on various occasions for various purposes, all designed to meet the needs of the community, physically, emotionally and spiritually. In the church, people with demonstrable gifts and abilities were elected to positions of leadership by the community. But there were certain criteria. Seek out from among you those of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But they walked in the fear of the Lord. This is not a church meeting. That's Acts 6.3. The gatherings at first in the New Testament were in the existing synagogues and had various offices such as elders, deacons, prophets, pastors or shepherds and teachers and apostles. The functions of these peoples from within the community were as a result of prayerfully seeking the will of the Lord. They were not ecclesiastical church offices instituted from the top. They didn't come in by boat, they came in by prayer. And they were placed there because God placed them there. So early church leadership, is it, was it a gender issue? Is it a gender issue? The leadership thus in position existed to equip the people of God, both men and women, for individual ministry so that the congregation as a whole could grow up into and do what God intended. Ephesians 4, 7-12 To each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. There are those today who make much of verse 8 saying that verse 11 implies that apostles and prophets and so on are the gifts that God gives to men only. But the language in the original does not mean men in terms of gender. The word that is used here is the word that applies to both male and female. 
Men here are not biological, it refers to people. It's the same as in Genesis 1.27, the term man means humanity, and Paul is saying, God gave gifts to mankind. So the case for women in ministry. To address this issue, we must keep in mind the result of the fall. In the domestic sphere, the natural sphere, within marriage, man was given the, quote, rule over women. In the spiritual sphere, she was responsible solely to God. It's her one-to-one -one relationship with him. The demands of God are paramount and supersede all human relationships. I'll say that again. The demands of God are paramount and supersede all, not some, human relationships. God expects every follower to put him first, regardless of all other claims. And as we'll see as we go on, this is not um, um, a ruler just being pedantic and saying, you put me first. There is so much of the love of God that we do not understand and why he requires us to put him first. And in doing that, everything else slots into order because we're out of alignment with him if we don't. It's not saying you've got to give up something. It's saying that if you do this, you will gain something. Matthew 10, 37-39 says, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me worthy of me and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me he's not saying that you don't love your children he's saying if push came to shove and you had to choose between your faith or your family you would choose him and we will have a look at this when we uh, look at the case for women in ministry in the church does God anoint women to preach teach prophesy or even lead there is no sex in soul. There we go. La Marichal again, General Booth's daughter said when she was challenged as a woman in ministry. Women have constantly been challenged about being in ministry. Beloved God makes no mistakes. When he appoints, anoints, commissions and sends a woman into ministry, she is fulfilling her God-given role. I don't want to make a case for women in ministry. I want us to examine some of the scriptures and come to a valid conclusion about them. I'm not banging a drum. God is the one who promotes. And if there is a specific call on your life, Proverbs 18:16 says, A man or woman's gift makes way for him or her. There is never any need to push. The only need is to be obedient to the call. Come when he calls. Let him be the master of your destiny. And I would say too, you need to tell him that you're available. Put yourself up for it. What did Isaiah say? Here am I. Send me. He offered himself. Acts 2, 17 and 18. It doesn't have many volunteers actually. Peter is quoting from the book of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then he qualifies it, just in case you weren't sure. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Inescapable facts here, sons and daughters. Keep in mind, please, that prophecy isn't silent. You can't prophesy and keep your hand over your mouth. We need to hold on to this because later when we look at women keeping silence, which is Paul's injunction in 1 Corinthians 14, it might not mean what we think it means. We've been taught it means we shouldn't speak. Either we have to be silent or we can prophesy, which is speaking, one thing or the other, and God is not the author of confusion. So how does this work itself out further on in the book of Acts? Acts 18, 18 and 24 and 26 in the NIV. Now here we have Priscilla and Aquila by name. Significantly, Priscilla is mentioned first. I don't think you can make that a man's name. Some of the women's names have actually been changed to look as though they're men's names. It was done in the King James Version to uh, make sure that it wasn't looking as though women were in leadership or doing anything. Junus, I think, is one of them. It was Junior. So, Priscilla mentioned first. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. They were Paul's travelling companions. You had to go some to be included in his tour. Verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Some think that uh, Apollos might have been the one that wrote Hebrews. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. I'm not going to push this too far, but it's clear they were both involved in teaching this erudite man. And again, Priscilla's name is mentioned first. It's quite possible, therefore, that the writer of Acts, Dr. Luke, is indicating that she took the lead in teaching. Just in case you think I'm making too much of this, look in Romans. Because Priscilla was no ordinary woman, she was not an appendage of her husband. In Romans 16, 3-5, we see her again. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers. They risked their lives for me. Again, Paul puts her name first. Like Paul, this couple were tent makers. He had previously met them when he came from Athens to Corinth. When he left for Syria, he took them with him. And it was some time later they met Apostle Apollos in Ephesus. So this was the woman Paul seems to have been proud to have described as a fellow worker. High praise indeed. This was no mere tea maker, sock darner, flower arranger or houseminder. I cannot believe that her lips were sealed or that her drive for God inhibited, was inhibited in any way by her sex. There was no sex in soul. We've had a little look at uh, God's original plan, the principle of authority and God's created order. We've had a look at the, the fallen earthly government, the second Adam, the essence of femininity, women as gender, love and marriage, what is woman, woman finding her true identity, what is man, most interesting that one. Uh, the one flesh relationship 
and putting the first commandment first and the role of women in the church and the role of women in the synagogue and the early church leadership and what they did there. So just to finish off really um, with this anyway is to, to have a look at the problem passages where you know we, we really do if we're in the charismatic church trip over them um, but as I say we, we've either got to hold our fingers over our mouths if we're going to prophesy because in one place Paul says all must prophesy or may prophesy and then the next it appears as if he's saying women are going to keep quiet so the problem passages are 1 Corinthians 14 uh, verse 26 and 34 to 36 and starting at verse 14 what shall we say brothers when you come together everyone has a hymn everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction a revelation a tongue or an interpretation all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church then verses 34 to 36 as in all congregations of the saints the women should remain silent in the churches oh they are not allowed to speak, oh, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And this is what has muzzled women over the years, probably over the last 2,000 years. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it reached? Remember what I spoke about at the beginning, the natural and the spiritual, where, what we saw in Genesis, how the woman had a direct line to God and an, an authority or responsibility line towards her husband, the natural and the spiritual. So verse 14 here in the scripture we've just looked at clearly says, everyone has something to bring. Exhortation, reproof, encouragement. So this is speaking of the spiritual role of everyone, including women. So what about this bit when Paul says, women keeping silence? Is he contradicting himself? He previously said, every woman who prays or prophesies, that's in 1 Corinthians 11.5, and follows the title uh, of this day's talk, which is, should women wear hats in church? We'll talk about that in a minute. But this particular bit about the woman keeping silence was no problem at all to the Jews. In the synagogue there was a division between men and women, husbands and wives, and in the Corinthian church the wives were shouting across the aisle, if you like, to their husbands. So Paul says, let them learn at home. In the context we're speaking here of the marriage relationship, the natural relationship where Adam was given the rule. Paul speaks to husbands and wives, he's not speaking spiritually. This prohibition on the women was in no way related to their spiritual worship, otherwise they would not have been able to praise, pray or prophesy, which we've seen they already did, where everyone brings something. Then we have the slightly knottier one of 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. It's slightly thornier this one, but nevertheless we need to look at it. What's Paul saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 11-15? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. 
That seemed pretty categorical on the face of it, and it has been a scripture which has held us back for many thousands of years. Not only can we not have authority over men, but we can't teach either. And the inference is that we were the cause of the trouble in the first place. There's no mention of Adam's part at all in it. So let's have a look at what quietness and submission mean. Remember that I have argued consistently that throughout the scriptures we see that woman is in rank, woman is in rank under the man because he is her source or her head in relation to the domestic sphere within marriage. But in spiritual terms she is solely responsible to God, two distinct roles. In the first, man has dominion. In the second, God alone is to exercise control. In the home, therefore, man is the head and exercises and carries the responsibility. So what we see here is Paul writing to Timothy, not to a church, but to an individual, and giving him the line of authority and instruction for issues within the home. This is domestic and in the context of marriage. Because if we apply these to the church, we are immediately in trouble and finding Paul contradicting himself. We cannot have it both ways. Women cannot observe silence and be vocal at the same time. They cannot be forbidden to teach and exhorted to prophesy at one and the same time. It's very much like those of us who are in leadership. We have an authority which God gives us, but our responsibility to carry out that is totally to the Lord. So my responsibility is not to use and abuse the people that he has put me over. Uh, and so the position of responsibility is actually a servant role. Because I'm here to serve. And leadership is servanthood, as we'll see when we come into looking at uh, the whole issue of leadership. It's not what has been brought into the church, which is the outside world that leadership is in some way chief executive position and I say what you do and you jump into line and do it. It is not like that. It is care of the sheep and I am totally responsible to God for how I treat you. And you would be quite within your rights of saying, she's treating me badly, Lord, tell her off. Um, I'm reminded of... Um, uh, an incident when I was at uh, another church where uh, someone had come for ministry and the ministry had not gone the way they wanted it to go and in fact I had to bring some correction uh, because the behaviour of the pers person concerned was not exactly as it should have been and it was a man. So he decided to complain to one of the elders of the church uh, and this elder, God godly man and on the way home when he was going to meet the, the guy concerned said to the Lord um, what's this all about then, what's Beryl done? God said to him, I've covered it. So he drove home, the man duly arrived and they sat down together and after a prayer uh, the uh, elder said, so what is the problem? And the man couldn't remember. He could not remember what it was that I had said that had offended him so much that he felt he needed to complain. So... Uh, the elder rang me up and told me this story and I said, well, praise God, I don't know what it is I've done, so I can't help you out either. Um, I've no idea, but God is your vindicator. I'll tell you if, you, if you are straight with him 
and look after the sheep to the best of your ability. Uh, that is what responsibility is of the man. The man has that responsibility before God about his wife. It's an awesome thing. Uh, incidentally, this is where, if you are single, the teaching on women needing a covering has come from. Um, you, the idea being, if you are a single woman, you should be covered by a man in the church. Uh, more of that I'll tell you about next time, but it's very interesting because const constantly Joyce and I were always being asked, who's your covering? And we used to say Jesus. Well, we know that Jesus is, but who's your covering? I never understood what they meant. I said, it's not biblical. Can't see it anywhere. Uh, so more about that. For the moment, where worship and service to God is concerned, the woman is free of man's headship and knows only God's. We've proved conclusively that a woman may prophesy, and indeed there were women who held the office of prophet in the Old Testament, so that is beyond dispute. If we are looking at the spiritual gifts, prophecy holds a higher function because it's to the whole church and it comes from the very throne of God himself. Because if you say you are a prophetic or a prophet, you are saying, I am hearing from God and I'm speaking out what I hear. So right away you've got yourself right in front of Almighty God and saying, well, you said this, Lord. And the uh, dangerous position if he didn't. But if he did, you can't get any higher than that. Taking this as a yardstick, teaching and preaching would become below it on the Richter scale. So you'd have prophecy, teaching, preaching. And if a woman is free to take part in the greater ministry, who can exclude her from the lesser? God trusts her at the higher level, but man doesn't trust her at the lower. When we apply this scripture in Timothy to the domestic sphere, what we see is this. For a woman to teach her husband in the sense of taking a leading and domineering role is forbidden. Paul doesn't allow it. Remember he was a student of the law, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew the Old Testament inside out. What he is saying is this would involve a woman coming out of her divinely appointed role and taking on herself the role God had ordained for the man. The scripture now immediately makes sense and no one would dispute it. As a matter of interest, what do we see around us all the time? Satan has turned the whole of God's created order upside down. We see men, women dominating the men, sitcoms making fun of the man and the woman taking the lead. The whole issue about Eve is about the usurping of the headship or the breaking of God's order. In these days, God is giving the headship back to the man in the home where it rightly belongs. Personally, I would say that the women love to have it so. We know when we come into divine order and long may it continue. Every woman in her heart wants to be cherished and looked after. That's why they used to say, didn't they, that the woman was taken from under his arm not from his brain so that she might be higher than him or his feet so they could tread on her, but under his arm so he could cherish her. And we are made to be cherished and to respond to that cherishing and enjoy um, a mutually upbuilding relationship with our husband. We don't understand the distortion of the fall, really. 
the more you look at it, the worse, the more skewed and slewed and awful it is. So, to sum up, this whole issue is about natural and spiritual. And in 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul is referring to a creational ordinance which has remained unaltered through the ages until Jesus comes. Woman as a natural creature is still subject to the man, but glory to God as a spiritual being in Christ she gains the right with man to eat of the tree of life. All the weakness of her heredity in Eve is swallowed up in the strength of Christ. Her vulnerability is lost in his stability. In this dimension her femininity disappears so Paul can say to the Galatian church there is no male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. We are complete in Christ not as part of a man but as a person with our own separate identity. It is in this relationship in Christ that a woman functions in public ministry. She is joined to Christ. Her completion is total. The fact that her first mother was deceived is of no significance in the new order. A functioning spiritual being, she is now wholly at God's disposal. Finally, we can completely trust the Holy Spirit. He will never anoint a woman to do something she ought not to do. When a woman is called, chosen and sent by God, the blessing on her is apparent and abundant, and the fruit is obvious. Just to clear up that uh, scripture about head covering, which I started with, should women wear hats in church. 1 Corinthians 11.3, verse 15 is the key. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3 to 15, the, the key verse is verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you but if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. That is the NIV. It could not be more clear. Men should have short hair. Ladies, yours should be longer. Why? in order that the angels can distinguish male from female in keeping with God's created order. If you imagine two people sitting in a pew, they've both got ponytails and their heads bowed. How do the angels know which is male and which is female, if the man has long hair and a ponytail? I know that this will upset the men who like to grow their hair long, but it is totally not biblical, and the reason is that it's a distortion of God's created order. They are being rebellious to his order. It's his ordinance that it should be, their hair should be short. Simply so that the angels knows who's who. They could be standing there saying, which one's which then? This is why unisex is so wrong. Everybody looking the same. Girls going around with flat chests looking like the fellas. And sometimes you can't tell which is which. Wrong. No more to it than that then. It's all about keeping God's order as he created them, male and female. So that's the end of that bit. And thank you for listening. It's been a marathon. Um, but biblical submission, what it does and doesn't mean next time. And remember, in the meanwhile, whatever he says to you, 
do it. See the pants job here now. Just going to pray. Father, thank you. Father, I ask for clarity about what it is you actually wanted to say to the guys this afternoon. Because it's, it's really key. I know in my spirit what it is, but whether I'll be able to get it into my understanding and out of my mouth is, is, a, is another issue. So Holy Spirit, would you just come now and, and take over, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. What he spoke to me about this morning was uh, new for old insurance policies. Anybody got an insurance policy where if your old thing goes wrong, you get, you get new for old, you get an exchange. Um, you know, your house insurance, if you break something, yeah, you get a new in a place, place for the old, new for old it's called. Well, what he was talking about um, was something that we, we all experience, and I particularly experienced it last night, and I've experienced it several times over the last few days, and that is a flood of thoughts, of memories, from way back situations in which I was when I was an unbeliever um, and they just flooded into my mind I could not get rid of them and I, I, I tried everything praying, capturing the thoughts pleading the blood of Jesus could not get my mind clear at all and then this morning something came into my mind again and out of my mouth came that person is dead they no longer exist gone and from that, the Lord said to me, to ask you, how real is your conversion experience? He's not saying you're not converted. He's not saying that you're not born again. He's not saying that you're not born, fulfilled with the Spirit, speaking in tongues and doing all the stuff. What he's saying is, how real is your experience of living in the new? Do you indeed reckon yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus I think that's Romans 6.11 likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord if you are bombarded by thoughts by accusing things just say that person does not exist as far as I'm concerned, when my son reminds me about things in the past, I think, I don't remember, because that person died the day I was born again. And it, that is the reckoning that we have to do if we're going to actually live in the new DNA. So how real is your conversion experience? Are you living in the old, or are you living in the new? Because... Until we can actually be living in the place that Jesus has won for us, which we saw earlier on, didn't we? God, Jesus and the church, unbelievers, no, demons and angels, fallen angels, unbelievers, you know, the list. So are you having a new for old? Are you living in the new? We can make the choices but unless we actually say to ourselves, that person died at the moment of my conversion, or more specifically, Romans 6, 4, 
do know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So anyone here who hasn't actually been water baptized, been through the waters of baptism, has not known that death to self. And you can try your hardest to walk in the new, but it will never happen. Because going through the waters of baptism, by doing that, you are signifying death to the old and the raising in new life. If we're going to actually fulfill what God's mandate is for us in the coming weeks, months and years, however long we've got till Jesus comes, we need to see ourselves as seated in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in truth. We need to actually live that, not just say, that's what the scripture says, but actually I feel I'm flat on my face most of the time. And the battle is in our minds. But if we can make the choice and recognise and receive the fact that everything that God has won for us, we're going to come into. You can make a choice this afternoon. Father, I've been living so far below the level that God wants me to that Jesus won for me on the cross. I've just been living so far, I want to come in to the fullness of the new nature, the fullness of what he won for me on the cross. In one way it's a decision, but it's something that will be contested heavily by the enemy the moment that you start trying to walk this thing out. The moment that you actually say, that person died the minute I believed doesn't exist anymore so all her old character traits all those things that carting stuff she was bringing in don't apply any longer teach me to walk in the new father teach me your ways show me your path but that was the revelation that he gave me this morning and just like a challenge you know to throw out really but I know what it is I was getting not tormented but I didn't want all this stuff it was from way back. And I thought, I don't want all that rubbish. I don't want it. It's not my stuff. And the instant I said, that person doesn't exist, my mind, gone. So I would urge you, those of you who have difficulty, I know I was speaking to someone the other day, and they were saying that they got this accusative all the time. Oh, you can't do that properly. You're no good. Look at you, you've made another mess. Or whatever. Is, is your tape that plays. Start telling them you're not having it. Don't sit down under it any longer. Because there is an equality in Christ that is ours. That it really is ours. We are in heavenly places in Christ and if the enemy ever finds out that, that's, that we believe that's where we are, we'll be storming the gates of hell, I tell you. He won't be coming looking for us, we'll be going looking for him. That's what will happen. So it's, it was just that really. We have been set free from sin. So we become slaves to righteousness. And that's it. New for old. You can have it. Pressing into everything. But it is, it is an active thing. We do have to do it. But the enemy, you know, will tie you up in knots, get you fighting battles that, you know, 
pushing this away and capturing that and claiming the other, just, it's dead, it's gone. It's out of the blood, pack it up. Don't want it, but you get to choose. God wants you to walk in freedom. Um, and so much, so much. If we're going to come into this agape shift that I believe is the key to the church of the 21st century to understand how much we are dark, we, we literally like a piece of cloth that has been dipped into a dye and we're just dyed with it through and through like the rustic rock, you know. But once we see that there is a different way of looking at things, that actually what we've done is brought our eros mindset uh, and self-centered mindset into the Christian walk, and we're not walked in agape at all, because we haven't known how to, we haven't been taught. Um, this is this Bob Mumford guy, you know. God has given him a revelation of what has happened. And uh, in his, in his uh, book, uh, The Agape Road, he talks about uh, like a revolution that started around about the early 1900s uh, with all the, the swing towards, uh, from purity, where the circle starts off quite white because of the Reformation time, going greyer, free love, humanism, everybody's got a right to choose about what they believe, you know, there's no absolutes, until right now we're in the, getting into the darkest bit. Because if you start speaking about truth as absolutes, oh well everybody's got their own opinion, well actually it's not an opinion, it's what the Word of God says, then the problem starts is, oh well who says that's right? The, the whole business of the canon of scripture we'll be looking at when we look at uh, a biblical submission. Because we have to have a standard, we have to have a plumb line down which we drop our lives. We can't have it like a wiggly hairpin line. Uh, and it is that that in these coming days will mark us out. Um, so, I want to understand this thing. I'm absolutely beseeching the Lord, even if it's not verbal, that he will show me how to live this Eros agape shift. I, 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 I'm not, uh, uh, I can't even think the things that I thought last week. <laughs> because once you start committing yourself, you know, teach me your way, show me your path. The children of Israel knew his works. They knew his works. They knew the parting of the Red Sea, they knew the manna, they knew the provision, they knew everything. But Moses knew his ways. Moses talked to him face to face. Moses knew the ways of God. And in these days we don't so much need the works of God which will follow if we know the ways of God. We need to know how he's going to react and respond in certain circumstances and what grieves his heart. I tell you, lukewarmness grieves his heart. Anyway, that's another thing. <laughs> so bless you. You get to choose this afternoon. Ask him to show you what it means to walk in the new DNA. To walk in the new seed. Do you remember, I'm a great one for this ESC business. Walk in that new. To n n not feed that black dog, but feed the white one. Because whichever one you feed, the blighter's going to get fat. So, uh, bless you. There we are. Thank you.
I've just been asked regarding the long hair for, for men and uh, the long hair for women, what, but about the Nazarite vow. First things, two different things, Nazarite and Nazarene. Jesus was a Nazarene. A Nazarite vow um, was when, like Samson, uh, he t- took a vow not to cut his hair. And because he did that, mine is an o- obvious example, I've taken a vow not to cut mine. I have on my head a Nazarite vow. I've said I won't cut my hair, except for the one time when I didn't realise how important it was not to go back on a vow. But that's early on in my Christian walk. So a Nazarite vow, it's an Old Testament thing. You can see Paul in Acts. He went and uh, uh, cut his hair and shaved because he'd taken a vow for a month not to cut his hair. It was, it was like they really meant business with God. And so they would take this vow. Some were born Nazarites, John the Baptist, uh, he didn't drink, I don't think he cut his hair, can't remember now, but pr- he was set apart from, from the womb to be different as a Nazarite. And that would mark him out. Camel, camel, wouldn't it? Camel, 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 camel hair and locusts and honey for your lunch and l- looking a bit wild and that would set you apart a bit, wouldn't it? So uh, in these days, in the New Testament, a Nazarite vow, if you take one, is because you are actually dedicating something to God and that is the reason you're doing it. So everyone is free to take a Nazarite vow if they want to. Um, When the Lord asked me to stop drinking, um, he asked me if I would not drink again until I I drank with him in the kingdom. Fine, that is a Nazarite vow. That's why I don't drink. It's not because I don't believe that drinking is... It's another part of my Nazarite thing. I had to ask him whether that meant raisins because you know and grapes because it all comes from the same thing and he sort of said oh, don't go over the top <laughs> just don't get your chin in the bottle again <laughs> so a Nazarite vow is when you, you actually vow that dedicate that part to, to God That's, does that answer your question? well it was more a case of um, you were saying the angels would not be able to tell the difference between a man and a woman they know the ones that are set apart right God says, see that one? That one's mine. Do you want to go and have a poke at that one? (laughs) Very few of them are I mean, what I'm talking about is the little goatee tails that the men wear, the church men wear. I mean, that is just satanic. Because so often it's just a little sprig at the back. Fashionable, but who's the author of the fashion? It's just like, it's just, it, it literally is like sticking the branch to the nose, you know, like it said in the Old Testament. I'm indicating putting my fingers to my nose and waggling them. That's what that means, putting the branch to the nose. They're just making a sign at God and saying, but they don't understand they're doing that. So when his own people are doing this, Satan's just saying, got them going down there, look at them, they're all doing it. God just saying, no, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, it won't be long now, you have exactly. <laughs> and then time's up. In Jesus' time, it wasn't a fashion for the men, or it wasn't a done thing for the men. Jesus would have had... No, he would not have had long hair. No, he would have had hair, hair cut here. You can see the, the regulations in the Old Testament where the men should cut their hair. But they mustn't shave themselves either. Uh, it, because that was one of the things that, um, that shaved the sides of the head that was one of the Canaanite religion their mourning ceremonies was to, to uh, 
So they had to be very careful not to be doing what the all around them were doing. It, it's just a you know question of yeah. Jesus would not have had the, the um, no, and he wasn't white, um, no, Caucasian. He was a strong Jewish boy, and still is. <laughs> he is our man in glory. You know, sometimes I think people forget that. If he were to come in here now, he would say, touch me, feel me. I'm flesh and bone. He would say the same thing as he said. You notice he didn't sound flesh and blood. He doesn't, his body doesn't function like ours does, doesn't need oxygen, doesn't need blood. But he's flesh and bone. He's substance. And he is our man in glory. We should be like him. We should have bodies. He could walk straight through the wall and say, hello, guys. And we'd all be at our faces, making some naughty noises into that. <laughs> Any more questions, anyone? It's more, I would imagine, that they need to see the created order is in order. Because there is a hierarchy. We don't like that. We see, because we are so fallen and so rebellious in our nature, we do not actually recognise that in heaven the angels don't think, oh, I don't know if I fancy doing that today. Perhaps I'll do it when I've done the potatoes and they've dig about the garden. No, no, when I've been there. It's because he's saying, do it, I'm going to do it. They're done. Oh, did it again. They're going to, they do it immediately. They instantly obey. Um, so they look down and, and then thinking, who's the man and who are the female? They can immediately see rebellion amongst God's own children. But it, it's because we're not taught. And even if we are taught, you watch it go then. Someone was saying to me this morning, the house group leader, leader is a martial arts, into martial arts. I said, well, probably the church doesn't believe in deliverance then. And if they don't, then they won't believe there's anything wrong with martial arts. And so there's no such thing as demons and no such thing as Satan. So one thing follows another. No, they won't believe the truth. That is, they're not deceived so much as self-deceived, I suppose you could say, because they, don't, they will not believe what the Bible says. So, but, hmm. Anybody else? 